Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 271. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. everyone i hope everyone is fine and dandy tell you what's coming in today's show we have movie soundtracks by david raiklin then the main fiction is how i lost 11 stone and found love by ian creasy there you go now before we get into this week's show yes did you realize we had a week off last week yes it, to be quite honest, I fought and fought like tooth and nail to get the one, the show before that, the between Christmas and New Year, to get that little show out and about. And then I was just like, oh, it's not going to happen. And I thought, let's just take a week off and actually put a note around everyone who's on the District of Wonders and says, lads, you know, lasses, take a week off. But, you know, Larry, ever the gentleman there, and I think Jack as well, they would already, Larry was his first show last year, you know, like, so he's already done a year, it was anniversary, so he didn't want to take one off, and Jack had already pre-recorded his show, so there you go. Talking about District of Wonders, we have a news announcement. We are looking to replace our very own Dave Robertson. Dave is leaving the Protecting Project Pulp as the host. Dave has got... A lot of exciting things coming on, and it's nothing, you know, we haven't fell out or anything like that. Just Dave's got a couple of projects that are coming up in the near future, which are just staggering, to be quite honest. And the last thing he wants is this little protecting project pulp around his neck, you know, like dragging him his time away from him. So Dave's stepping down in, I think it's about the, the 14th of February. So we're looking to replace Dave as a host. If you want to come and try, honestly, if you want to, the, the chance is there now. Get in touch, starshipsover at gmail.com. You'll be working with Fred, our very own Fred Hymon. Fred kind of takes care of, of all the kind of stories and everything like that goes out hunting for them. And if you go over to the Protecting Project Pulp, you'll, you'll, there's a big kind of write-up there of, of what your duties would be if you, you know, you kind of thinking, oh my God, maybe a bit too much, might not be. Have a look over there, and then you can you make your own mind up. But basically, you kind of front the show and, you know, deliver deliver your goods. So, yes, we're looking for a host to host Protecting Project Pulp. Get in touch. Now, because last week was the beginning of the month, but we're now kind of replacing it with this week as the beginning of the month, you will know it is art on Starship Sova. And like I say, we were kind of not grabbing at straws, but everyone's got work to do, or, you know, their own kind of lives. 
And Skeet was kind of a little bit backs against the wall. And I just mentioned to Skeet, I said, have we got anything we can put up for this, this month? I says, what about? And actually, I was saying about Skeet did an artwork for the sanatorium. But then Skeet come back with the volume one of Starship Silver Stories. So we are going to use that as the cover art. Because basically, it's been in that book, but ever the recyclers on Starship Silver. Get a load of Skeet's work for that Starship Silver's volume one. Skeet. I just actually, you forget how good that is. You know, get rid of all the kind of font and clutter like that and just have a look at the picture. And that's just amazing. And it's, that's the picture that inspired Larry's Lord Dickens Declaration. And it was the first book as well from Starship Sewer Stories. You know, the, the, the vault there that now holds three books. So it's quite a, you know, a cover that kind of means a lot to me as well. So it's actually lovely to recycle it and get it up on Starship Sofa as well, you know. We've got a, a Belton picture coming up next month as well. Skeet's just delivered it as well. Snaffle from some young artist. But anyways, enough of that. Skeet, thank you so much. Do pop over. I'll put a link on the Skeet's Facebook page there. Skeet is ever the one doing with his... I don't know if you've seen Skeet's work on... He does the disc golf... It's like frisbees into these kind of metal catching things. It's quite, um, apparently it's quite big in America. It's not that big over here, Skeet. But have a look at some of Skeet's work over there as well. Skeet, you're a bloody big star. Thank you so much. One final bit of news before we delve deep into this story is that this particular story, the Ian Creasy one, how I found, how I lost 11 stone and found love was snaffled by our very own Adam Peart, assistant editor at Starship Sofa. This is Adam's first little try into oh, He's getting loads of stories there now. He's certainly got the, the bit between his teeth. But this is the first one we're kind of getting up online and live. So, Adam, way to go. Just keep what you're doing doing. Plus, you're just pulling some stories out of nowhere, and it's fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Before we get to that story, though, we'll have our very own science fiction movie soundtracks. David, sir. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raiklin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. This week's show is based on a listener request for theme songs. Let's begin with television theme songs. We're going to listen to some of the best, coolest science fiction TV theme songs of all time. These shows have transcended the genre of science fiction, which is very cool and wonderful on its own, and become integrated into world culture. They're part of people's day-to-day lives. And, of course, the theme songs are, too. They're more than just cool science fiction. They're great songs that are part of musical history and everybody's everyday life. In fact, let's try something a little different today. We can try a little bit of a party game where I'm going to play the song without telling you the name, and you and your friends can try and guess and see how quickly you can identify these famous theme songs. It'll be fun and easy, and nobody's keeping score unless you want to. And right afterwards, I'll tell you the name of the song and who wrote it and interesting information about what makes it magic. Here's the first one. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. 
You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Theme from the Twilight Zone, music of Maurice Constant. This is actually the theme from the second season of the Twilight Zone. The first season has a wonderful, eerie theme song written by Bernard Herrmann, who also scored a number of the classic Twilight Zone episodes. This famous theme by Maurice Constant is unique. There's really never been anything before or since that has that bizarre electric guitar dissonance along with the strange orchestral dissonance and, of course, the inimitable Rod Serling narrating over it. Another interesting story is that at the beginning of the second season, there was another professional announcer was intoning the words, but they weren't satisfied with the effect. In those days, you could experiment more with uh, television and try different things out. So Rudd Serling gave it a try, and that also launched a whole second career, because in addition to being a brilliant writer and producer, he was also a great narrator. Constant was a French composer, but he came up with a guitar riff that's iconic, a mem for the Twilight Zone concept everywhere in the world. I hope you enjoyed guessing on that one. For this next one, I think this is pretty easy. Probably every science fiction fan will get it. It's one of the greats. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Theme for the original Star Trek series by Alexander Courage. This remarkable fantasy fanfare begins with a mysterious, spacey kind of texture and then a heroic fanfare develops. Then it turns into a romantic, sexy soprano vocalese that is singing without words, plus bongos. Not at all what you'd expect for a science fiction show. It does have a link back to The Twilight Zone in that it was originally presented without narration, but to further clarify what the show was about, Roddenberry wrote this now immortal set of lines for William Shatner to read that are probably the best-known lines in the history of television science fiction. There's a kind of uh, positive, optimistic quality to choosing fantasy, romantic music, something that's more positive and heroic. actually harkens back to even earlier days of fantasy and science fiction where there really wasn't a unique, spacey science fiction sound. Although there is a little bit of that at the beginning of, of the fanfare. And that's entirely fitting because there's a positive, optimistic quality to the mythology and philosophy of Star Trek, and it's important that the theme song identify that. And it did it so well that it was used again and again through the sequels, television, and in motion pictures. Dum da dum is now a world cultural mem. So I hope you had fun guessing that one. The show, by the way, also uh, recorded new versions of the theme song in in each of its three seasons. Now let's go to an equally famous theme song, but in a completely different style.
theme song to the original Doctor Who series, music by Ron Grainer and Delia Derbyshire. This is a unique theme song that blends an almost rock and roll kind of bass line with a whistling synthesizer melody and weird and wonderful synthesizer sound effects and textures called uh, Bubbles and Sparkles. There was really nothing like it prior to this. The, the closest analogy I can think is the work of Louis and B.B. Barron on Forbidden Planet, where Louis would write a kind of sketchy composition and B.B. would create these wonderful experimental sound effects that were at least as important as the notes in creating the, the sound and the feel of the score. In fact, for the Doctor Who theme, uh, Delia Derbyshire had so transformed the original sketch by Ron that he insisted that she be given a co-composer credit, but the BBC declined. On the other hand, her work did get some credit during the series itself for doing sound effects, and also she did wonderful sound effects on other TV series. You have to remember in those days that there were no synthesizers. In order to create these sounds, you had to create a unique one-note-at-a-time bank of sounds that you recorded onto tape, and you pieced together, spliced the tape to try and create a seamless whole. Incredible when you think about it. And yet this song has stood the test of time through 50 seasons of Doctor Who. They still use these kinds of sounds and the basic theme in all the shows. It sets this spacey, scary, otherworldly, but fun kind of vibe that's really quite wonderful. And it also is part of world culture. Now let's move to another science fiction theme song that I think you'll all have fun guessing. Yes, it's the theme from X-Files, created by my friend Mark Snow. It's one of the most iconic of all TV theme songs. The show was a smash hit and actually for a while had a a record for the uh, longest-running science fiction series in the United States. The theme music was a long process of creation, trying to find the right sound. And eventually they ended up with a lead sound that has a whistle that's quite reminiscent of the Doctor Who theme song, although I don't think that was intentional. And there's also a cool echoing mid-range sound, burbling sound effects and and whooshes that, again, give it a sense of mystery and far-out sci-fi UFOs. The show is basically about uh, conspiracies and UFOs, things that are very difficult to get your hand on, and the, the music kind of evokes that. It has a mysterioso ephemeral kind of vibe to it while being catchy as well. Somehow this combination allowed it to become a top 10 hit song and was remixed numerous times by by many different acts and used in other TV shows and movies. So it's quite iconic. The the show was all done with uh, electronic sounds that helped give it a uh, more horrific and, uh, and dark vibe. In the case of the theme song, it has an almost jaunty whistling in the face of paranormal phenomena kind of effect. Well, now on to our next mystery sci-fi TV song. This one is a real departure in style. (laughs) 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer theme song by the band Nerf Herder. That's a great name for a geek culture punk rock band with that Star Wars reference. The band actually had never worked in movies or TV before. They were uh, relatively new, had not thought of writing theme songs. What happened, Josh Whedon had been looking for someone to write the theme song for Buffy and had not been satisfied with any of the results. He wanted something different, and he started looking to bands for songs. He got turned on to this band through uh, one of the actresses on the show, Allison Hannigan, and they played him this song which they hadn't really thought of lyrics for yet, and that's one of the reasons it doesn't have lyrics, is that he liked the punk youth culture, not your grandfather's vampire slayer vibe that it set up. They added that little organ introduction, a symbol, a, a musical cliche for horror and science fiction since uh, a century ago, and uh, other little sound effects to help give it a sci-fi fantasy vibe, and I think it works really well. Although some folks might not think of this as being a science fiction show or science fiction music, I think it's uh, a popular enough show and a well-enough known song that... Uh, it's worthy of inclusion in our little guessing game of classic theme songs. In fact, we're going to continue this trend a little bit more with another theme song that's actually more like a conventional song, although it's also classic sci-fi television. Take my love, take my land, take me where I cannot stand. I don't care, I'm still free, you can't take the sky from me. Take me out. The theme to Firefly by Josh Whedon and Sonny Rhodes. This is a kind of fresh direction for your science fiction theme songs. It's really more country-western blues than typical sci-fi electronics or fantasy overtures, the kind of things that are in most science fiction shows, and that was quite uh, intentionally wanted to go in a different direction. The lyrics have a heroic individualism in the face of a future dystopia theme to them. They're beautifully uh, crafted and memorable, so there are sci-fi elements in the lyrics of the song, but the music is a bit of a departure, and it does perfectly fit this science fiction universe where it's possible to go to different planets, different cultures, where they are not all technologically advanced and uh, have, have very different characters and lifestyles. In fact, that may be one of the reasons why this classic but short-lived series had trouble catching on. So much of it did feel like a science fiction western. But that's also part of why people love it and why it was so uh, innovative, especially in a musical context. Uh, my friend Greg Edmondson actually did the music for all of the episodes of Firefly, and he talked about how they didn't want to sound like a typical science fiction show, but they did want to evoke far-off places and unique emotional sounds, things that have high impact using ethnic instruments, folk instruments from all around the world. They were kind of ahead of the curve on this, and uh, other shows have done this, uh, most notably Battlestar Galactica. And uh, that show also has their own unique palette of uh, percussion and ethnic instruments. That whole idea of using folk and ethnic instruments to evoke far-off science fiction worlds was really begun back in the 1960s by Jerry Goldsmith, but it really caught on in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. Science fiction music and theme songs can have an influence on the wider culture and, and movie making because we often have more freedom in the kind of worlds and stories that invite something fresh and experimental. 
Hope you've been enjoying our little guessing game. And now for the final entry, one that's a reinvention, a reimagining of a classic TV show in a completely new 21st century set of characters, settings, and music. to the new Battlestar Galactica by my friend Bear McCreary. This is a fascinating blend of ethereal world music vocals, driving Asian percussion, playing rock and roll kind of prog rock rhythms, plus far out modern electronic textures. The blend is real distinctive, and I hope you guess that one right off. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction fantasy video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Connect on Facebook and see what we're up to next. D-A-V-I-D dot R-A-I-K-L-E-N. Contact me, David Raiklin, at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. There you go, David. Thank you so much. Like I say, this actually movie soundtrack came in a number of weeks ago as well. So, David, he's on the ball. That thank you so much. Just you know to put it out there as well. If anybody's got an idea for a fact article, you know, a one-off or you know just a few or a you know a kind of big run of them, get in touch again. You know, it's a new year, start afresh. Starships over at gmail.com. Next up is the main fiction, and it is How I Lost Eleven Stone and Found Love by Ian Creasy. Ian Creasy lives in Yorkshire, England. He's published about 50 short stories, he says, in various magazines and anthologies. And in 2011, he published his first debut collection, The Maps of Edge. He last appeared in Starship Sova, I don't know if you can remember, in 2008. Wow, Ian, years ago, with Reality 2.0. You can find a link to that and several other of his podcast stories on the audio page of his website, iancreasy.com, and I'll certainly put a link on the Ian's site. Ian, thank you so much. Now, this story is narrated by Dennis Lane. Starship Sova regulars will know Dennis as a voice of the old movie soundtrack and actually his book, the Pouring Dark, which were featured in the first chapters a while back. Now, there's one thing that you might not know about Dennis, and I didn't know this about Dennis. Dennis is a frustrated actor, apparently. His mother took him to audition as one of the Von Trapp children in the local theatre, and he was, in his words, the furthest thing from a little Austrian boy in town. He now confines his act and putting his silly voices in front of a microphone, Dennis, and we are so glad for that as well. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present How I Lost Eleven Stone and Found Love by Ian Creasy People always ask me, does it hurt? I tell them the truth. No, it doesn't hurt at all. If they're the mean type, the kind of people who say, why don't you just diet? I'll whistle for Charlie. 
Then I say, because this is better. Do you want to try it? Don't worry, you won't bite. Well, you will, but it won't hurt. That sorts them out. They always shrink back and make some lame excuse. When Charlie starts sniffing them, they run like hell. Lots of people call him ugly. Don't be so judgmental, I say. After all, Charlie's from another planet. And that spotty purple is camouflage at home. That's what I've heard anyway. I've never been out there myself. When I was a boy, I dreamed of going into space. I thought being fat wouldn't matter in zero gravity. I used to imagine myself floating between the stars, moving so easily, so delicately, like I could never do on Earth. Yeah, the career advisor had a good laugh at that. I promised myself if I couldn't go into space, at least I'd get myself a really cool space creature. That'd be one upon Jodie Taylor, whose dad had a snake. Not to mention Chipper Dan, who kept spiders for a while, till he got bored with them and left them all in my lunchbox. My parents wouldn't let me have a hamster, never mind anything else. But when I moved out, well, they threw me out when I got to 22, that's when I bought Charlie. He cost a fortune. But it's easy to save up when you don't go out much. His habits took some getting used to. Though he's so friendly, I soon got attached to him. He's a perfect pet. Really cheap to keep. And quiet. I'd far rather have Charlie than some horrible dog slobbering everywhere and barking while I'm trying to watch when aliens attack. That's when I usually feed him. When I'm watching TV. I'll sit down with a remote and some chocolate cookies or a big bag of crisps or maybe nuts and of course some beer or coke or something. Anyway, I sit down and Charlie snuggles up to me. My spines are softer than they look and I don't even notice when he starts sucking. I just see he's got his thing in me, his pro... I can never remember the word. Yeah, proboscis, that's it. It doesn't hurt at all. He pokes it into my belly or the top of my leg, anywhere really, and then he gets going. That's how I lost 11 stone. Sure beats working out, and there's no doctors sneering at you between psychobabble. I went from 23 stone down to 12, in less than a year. Charlie didn't just suck the weight out of me, he kept me company too. I was pretty lonely back then. That started to change when I lost weight. I had a bit more confidence to get to know people, and they didn't laugh at me or beat me up like at school. I started going out more, even watching sports. Everything would have been perfect if it hadn't been for Charlie. He started shedding spines, and he smelled like a blocked drain. I kept having to push him away because of the smell and the spines on my clothes. But he looked so out of sorts. I was really worried. I had to do something. It took me a while to find a vet who would see him. Most vets only do earth animals. That's a bit prejudiced, don't you think? They shouldn't be so judgmental. I don't see what right they have to turn Charlie away just because he's purple and spiny and not from around here. Anyway, I finally found Torek's place. Turns out he's the only exotic vet in Liverpool. Looking round the waiting room, I felt like I'd walked into a comic strip. People say Charlie's ugly, 
but some of those aliens were out of this world, and their pets were even weirder. Torix, one of those silver bug cats you see on TV yapping about trade and stuff, almost makes me glad I never got to another planet, if they're all full of strip malls like ours. When I saw him, I remembered the tax thing they're always complaining about, the Xeno tariff, and I wondered how much this was going to set me back. But I couldn't leave, not with Charlie looking so bad. I hoisted him onto the table, and he just lay there like roadkill, his last few spines all droopy and limp. I thought Torek would have some beeping gadget that he'd wave over Charlie to find out what was wrong. But he just asked me a few questions. I said I'd had Charlie a year, and I'd fed him myself. And it was only lately he'd gone off colour. Do you feed him as much nowadays? said Torek. His translator had a posh accent that made him sound like a bad guy in an old film. Not since I got down to twelve stone. That's my ideal weight, you know. He still eats now and then, if I'm pigging out. But I've had to shoo him away a lot. I even have to shut the bedroom door. That's the problem. He's malnourished. Like, hungry? I was surprised at this. The guy who I got him off said he could go months without feeding. Back home, perhaps. I believe they hibernate through eclipses. Here, they need regular meals. You want to be careful about keeping him indoors. Otherwise, someone might get hurt. It doesn't hurt, I said. But I saw what he meant. And maybe it explained why Mrs. Barlow next door kept giving me dirty looks. What can I do? I asked. Torek waved his antenna in a sort of whatever gesture. The simplest treatment would be to consume more yourself and feed him frequently until he recovers. The perfect solution. I've always loved eating. Now I could eat even more and help Charlie at the same time. I started planning a real nosh-up as I made for the exit. While I talked to Torek, more people's pets had arrived in the waiting room. On my way out, I noticed a purple, insecty, lizardy thing with brushy spines. Just like Charlie. Smaller, but definitely the same kind of critter. I'd never seen anyone else with one before. I stopped to see who owned it. She was around my age, fairly short, with blonde hair that looked like the before in a conditioner advert. Her collarbones poked out above a white blouse that hung loose down to her baggy jeans. Sort of wasted looking is the best way I can put it. Could have been drugs, but I didn't think so. You know, eating disorder is a nasty kind of phrase. I mean, disorder. It's practically a sign you'd see on a broken elevator. Just because I love food, does that mean I'm disordered? If someone isn't peckish very often, is that a disorder? Don't be so judgmental. Yeah, there must be something in it, because we could always spot each other. It was as if she really did have a sign on her, which I could see because I had one too. She had a look in her eye, a walling-off-the-world kind of look that I knew all too well, from the inside. That look, that so-familiar look, 
made me feel like we were crewmates on disorderly diehards. Now, I never used to be much at chatting up girls. They always laughed at me, even before I spoke to them. Yeah, call me big lardy fat ass, why don't you? Like I hadn't noticed until you shouted. I never had a girlfriend when I was fat. Never asked anyone out. And they sure as hell didn't ask me. But losing 11 stone helps your confidence. I'd started smiling at women, and sometimes they even smiled back. A smile. If you're the type who gets laid all the time, you don't know how much a smile can mean. Now, I was ready to try talking to the girl in the white top. It helped that she was someone like me, with an eating disorder. But obviously, I didn't start by mentioning that. Instead, I sat down next to her and said, That's a rare critter you've got there. How long have you had him? Or is it a her? It's hard to tell, isn't it? I call mine Charlie, but I'm not really sure either way. I stopped because I was babbling. My face felt red and I looked at her pet rather than her. Even though Charlie was probably too ill to do much, I kept a tight hold on him. If he attacked the other critter, or tried to mate with it, that might not go down well with the owner. From the corner of my eye, I saw her giving me a polite smile. Our two critters eyed each other up. To my relief, they didn't fight. I'm fond of Charlie, but if he had screwed up my chance with this woman, no supper for him. She said, This is Morna. I've had her a few months, but she's not doing very well at the moment. I thought I knew why. Charlie had helped me so much, I could see how a critter like him would suit an anorexic or bulimic or whatever label they'd stuck on her. But if Charlie couldn't live off me at 12 stone, no wonder her pet was so small and still. I was pretty sure what Torrick would tell her. I didn't say so. I've heard women can be put off by men who act like they know everything. And apart from that, us disorder types don't appreciate people getting judgmental about our eating habits. Torrick might suggest that she eat more, but I certainly wasn't going to. Instead I said, My name's Stuart, by the way. I live near the spaceport. Had a hell of a time finding this place. I'm Isabel, she said in a tone friendly enough to encourage me to keep talking. Her voice was low-pitched, deeper than you'd expect from someone so fragile-looking, and I wondered if she'd had a voice mod in that fad a few years back. We chatted a little, with me hampered by trying not to say anything stupid. I knew I had to seize the chance, because this could be over any minute, when she got called in to see Torek. So finally, I asked if I could call her sometime. Sure, she said. Yeah, I don't mind telling you, I really went on a binge that night. Pizza and beer, blueberry pie and chocolate fudge cake. It was for Charlie too, and he perked up a bit, but mostly it was for me. I had a date. Well, actually, I had a chance to ask for a date, and I worried that it would go wrong, that she might change her mind. But the call went okay, and I arranged to meet her in a few days. I didn't take Isabel out to dinner, of course. Instead, I met her in the park, and we made for a bench by the lake. I thought that would be safe. But just as we sat down, a grey-uniformed nanny nurse glided by with her toddlers, who started feeding the ducks and geese. The little boy kept shouting, Greedy goose, greedy goose, 
And why is that one not eating? Perhaps it's full, dear, said the nanny nurse. Come along. Isabel looked unhappy. At first I thought the duck feeding had upset her, or that she regretted agreeing to see me. But then she said, Morna died. I'm so sorry, I said. I didn't ask her what her critter had died of. It was awful. She curled up on my bed, then didn't move. I slept on the floor for two nights. I mean, with an alien pet, you never know if they might just be hibernating or something. But she was so cold. And whenever I touched her, trying to see if she was still alive, begging her to wake up, her spines came off in my hand. Isabel started snuffling as she spoke. I took her to Torric again, and he said she was dead. I couldn't even take her home to bury her. Torric said he had to incinerate the body because Earth regulations class dead aliens as hazardous waste. So I just stood and watched while the flames... She broke into choked little sobs. I did the best I could to comfort her, putting an arm around her bony shoulders while she cried herself out. I didn't speak, except a sort of wordless rumble of offered sympathy. After a minute or so, she lifted her head and wiped her eyes, spreading little wet smears of that black stuff. Mascara, is it, women sometimes use on their eyelashes. She put makeup on for me, I thought. I saw her try to pull herself together and put on a facing-the-world expression. When she looked at me, I didn't know what to say. Earlier, I'd practised a few lines in my head. Talk about the weather. Ask where she works. All that kind of stuff. But none of it seemed appropriate now. I asked if she wanted to go home. She shook her head, but got up off the bench. We walked along the waterside. As we strolled, I took her hand in mine. It was small and thin as a child's. The sun glittered on the windswept surface of the lake. Whenever we passed ducks waddling over the grass, they quacked and flew to the water. I waited for Isabel to speak. About halfway round, she started talking about how, when she was a little girl, her grandparents took her to a show farm. The guide said all the animals were retired, which apparently meant they wouldn't be slaughtered like normal. It was the first time I'd heard how animals got killed and eaten, and I started crying. They had to buy me an ice cream to get me to shut up. Then we went to the bird pen, where all the hens and geese were tame, of course, and a big white goose snapped my ice cream cone right out of my hand, so I started crying all over again. Isabel smiled a little, but it stopped short of her eyes. I guess now you're thinking I don't ever do anything except cry. I'm not like that, I promise. I just remembered that farm now. I don't know why. Maybe those geese reminded me. I can go over and make them apologise if you like, I nearly added. Get your ice cream back. But I bit it off just in time. A long pause later, I realised what she really expected me to do was come up with a matching anecdote. Something that told her about my feelings and all that. I cast about my memory and said, my family 
were mad on taking me to stately homes with big flower gardens. When I was a kid, I never really saw the point of flower beds, but I remember one place where they had a pond with black swans. Back then, I was moody and angsty, the way kids get. The words touched lightly as feathers on the vast, lonely void of my childhood. And I thought it would be cool to have black gardens, tall, dark walls casting long shadows, and inside everything black. Flowers, bees, swans. I loved the black swans with their red beaks. But when they stretched their wings to clean them, I was surprised to see that they had white underfeathers. White feathers on a black swan. I stopped for a moment, knowing I didn't have the words to explain. It was a kind of weird zen moment, like I'd seen the answer to a riddle I hadn't heard the question of. I didn't think Isabel understood what I was getting at, and I could hardly blame her, since I'd described it so badly. So I finished by saying, And the swans had this funny eye-pitched squeak. I tried to do the squeak. Isabel didn't laugh as I'd hoped, but she smiled a little more and it reached her eyes this time. The sun shone on her blonde hair, just for a minute. Because of the smile and her being so thin, she looked like she'd stepped from the cover of a magazine. We fell into a conversation about where we'd go if we could fly away for the winter, like migrating birds. Then we talked about our boring jobs and what we'd originally wanted to be when we grew up. We laughed about that and promised to be a spaceman and actress just for each other. Isabel did a little skit as if from a one-woman outdoor show. Oh, cruel grass, you looked so greener when you led me on. I wanted to make hay and you gave me hay fever. Oh, heartless tease, oh, cruel sneeze, when will I find my final ease? I pretended the park was an alien planet and reported back on what I found. A wire mesh receptacle filled with ritual offerings of plastic bags and sacred cans. A beautiful native dressed in white and gold, such a gorgeous vision to a man who'd been alone in space for years. The evening passed quicker than a rocket reaching orbit. She came back to my flat. I felt like I'd won the lottery the first time I bought a ticket. On the way, we picked up a bottle of wine, though when we got home we didn't even open it. Isabel turned her back to me while she undressed. I noticed that she wore a bra, although she was so slim she had no breasts to speak of. In bed, our figures seemed a little odd together. Even though I'd lost so much weight, she was far thinner than me. So delicate-looking that I almost feared touching her. We kissed. I think it all went as well as could be expected. Not as well as in books or in movies. In truth, I didn't find it quite so great as I'd dreamed. And yet, afterward, when we snuggled up to each other, I loved the warmth of her skin, the sense of togetherness. I woke early, the dawn's grey light creeping through the thin curtains. I was so used to waking alone that it took me a few moments to realise Isabel had gone. A sick feeling seized me when I thought she'd left in the night. But then I saw her shoes still under the chair. Perhaps she'd got up to use the bathroom, 
and that had woken me. I waited, but she didn't come back. A few minutes later, I tried the bathroom anyway. She wasn't there. Well, maybe she was an early riser. My stomach growled, and I decided I might as well get some breakfast. We'd have time to talk before we headed off for work. On my way to the kitchen, I saw Isabel lying naked on the living room sofa, with Charlie's proboscis sucking her flesh. Funny, Charlie's feeding never looked ugly to me until I saw it on her. It was like a scene from a monster movie, yet Isabel's eyes looked so rapt, far more than they had last night. The sick feeling returned, ten times worse. I felt stupid and pathetic as I realised how I'd been duped. Isabel had never liked me at all. Her critter was dead, so she needed mine. She'd only slept with me because she had to. Right then, I hated her for using me, and I hated myself for being so easily taken in, for being stupid enough to think that any woman would ever care for me. So, that's what you really came for, I said. Charlie scuttled away at the sound of my angry voice, leaving a small, pale mark on Isabel's flat stomach. She jerked in surprise and turned to look at me. No, no, she said. I came to be with you. And yet, here you are, with Charlie. I thought I could resist this. Isabel's low tone sounded flat and weary, lifeless as Torric's translator. I was going to invite you back to my place, but if we were going to be together, I knew I'd have to visit you sometime. I thought I could be strong. I should know by now I can't be strong. I'm weak. I've always been weak. As she spoke, she got up and walked past me, back to the bedroom. I know how it feels to be weak, I said, and I did know. All those years of being fat had taught me how a resolution made one day, diet, exercise, eat fruit, not chocolate, can crumble the next. I desperately wanted to believe her, and I thrilled to the thought of her words, if we're going to be together. But if we were going to be together, why had she gathered her things? I'm sorry, Isabel said as she began dressing. I shouldn't have come. I never meant this to happen. She had a horrible, defeated look in her eye. I don't want to take Charlie away from you. She put her shoes on and headed for the door. Don't go! I raced around her and blocked away in the hall. I can run, now I'm twelve stone. I don't mind Charlie feeding from you. I just thought that was the only reason you came. That you didn't really care for me at all. Isabel didn't try to push past me. But she didn't go back either. Her expression wavered between doubt and determination. Look, at least let me make you some coffee. I said. Then we can talk. The pause stretched for a dozen of my speeding heartbeats. At last, Isabel nodded. She walked back to the living room and sat on the sofa. I went into the kitchen. While I waited for the kettle to boil, I watched Isabel delve into her handbag for a hairbrush and start wrenching her hair into shape with savage jerks. Little clumps of thin blonde hair hung all around the edge of the brush. 
I made myself a bowl of cornflakes, but didn't bother getting anything for her. I was pretty sure Isabel wasn't the type who ate much in the mornings. I remembered some white coat type telling me, Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Yeah, sure it is, if you're a food fascist. Out of habit, I nearly flipped the TV on, but just managed to stop myself. I gave Isabel her coffee. Morning, I said, like we did this every day. She took a sip. A small smile crept into her face, like the sun peeping up over the spaceport. You didn't put sugar in it, she said. Of course not. I sat down next to her. Anyone who ever makes me coffee, my parents, the nurses at the clinic, they always put sugar in it. It's like they think I won't notice they're trying to force-feed me calories. I'm not judgmental, I said. And that's how I found love. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ian's. Ian, big thank you. And Dennis, sir, thank you very much. You've dipped your toes into the voice world of Starships over now. <laughs> Dennis is going to get battered now of Adam giving you stories. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, any thoughts, ideas for things to do in 2013? Get in touch with me, starshipsover at gmail.com. Looking for a host for Protecting Project Pulp? Same email address, anything. Don't forget to donate. Keeps the old bird going. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.